Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex and I are incredibly excited again, but there is a special reason why we're so excited. Alex, tell us why we're so excited. Because Dorman's here. Yay! Yay! So for once, I mean, you all know Dorman, Andy Dorman. He's down the pub every week. Uh, most glorious hour was undoubtedly when he was the roast master general for the, the Greatest Britain thing where he just basically slated uh, your top ten brilliantly um but dorman you are a serious historian aren't you well i wouldn't go that far i'm a historian sure but serious <laughs> is a whole different thing <laughs> so we have invited you to come on to uh level up our irish history because it's been pretty woeful apart from we, we've had one sort of general program and obviously you bring the irish to most of the pub sessions but we're going to do a neat little session on your speciality today aren't we Hopefully, yeah. I'll okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the plan. Whether it goes to shit or not, we will find yeah. out. Okay. You focus on the 18th century. You refer to it as the best century. Uh, what yes. was the situation in Ireland in the 18th century? I'm guessing the English were being mean to the Irish. Yeah, uh, things were not going so well for the poor little Irish. Uh, that old joke of the 800 years of English oppression. This fits nicely right into that. Um, so in the wake of the Nine Years' War or the, Lord of the or the League of Augsburg or the Williamite War, depending on what field you're studying, the situation in Ireland is probably best described as tense. Uh, you're in a position where Ireland has a religious minority being in a position of power compared to the religious majority, where if you look at somewhere like, I don't know, France in the same century, you've got, you know, French Huguenot Protestants are the minority and they're being suppressed whereas in ireland you have the opposite way around where catholics are the ones being suppressed uh that war i mentioned earlier uh, showed what ha could happen if there were a catholic uprising and as such the new english king william and his protestants and the irish protestants wanted to find a way to suppress the catholics and keep their own sort of power in check uh, keep their own, own position and as such, they enacted something known as the penal laws. And that kind of sums up the 18th century, these penal laws. So, you... go on. Sorry. I was going to throw something really random in there, but keep going. Keep going. <laughs> I thought it was going to be something to do with the pronunciation of penal. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's already <laughs> laughing. Uh, so, you, so really, that your story that you're telling today starts with this nine years war you've mentioned, doesn't it? What is it? Yeah. Exactly. So that war, uh, it's kind of an extension of a European war. Uh, it's like a, a separate theatre of it, uh, where this is uh, James II having a Catholic son and uh, his Catholic son annoying Parliament. So Parliament ship over William of Orange and William of Orange kicks James out. James ends up fleeing to Ireland 
Uh, reason being is he put in place there earlier a fellow called Richard Talbot, who was Catholic and quite pro-Catholic, and he started putting a lot of Catholic uh, sympathizers or Catholics in high positions in Irish society that they didn't occupy before. This really concerned the Protestants. But when James came over, it actually suited him because he had kind of a a second base of operation, so to speak. So William of Orange and his army invades, and you essentially have an English war being fought on Irish soil uh, for a couple of years between 1688 and about 1691, 1690, 1691-ish. Uh, so this war, it doesn't really go particularly well for James. It opens with the very famous Battle of the Boyne, where you have William's army of French, Irish, and British managing to defeat James's army of French, Irish, and British. (laughs) (laughs) This is, I know that name, that battle name. Yeah, that's the famous one that the lads in Ulster like to trot out on the 12th of July. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of British, Irish, British, Irish being thrown here. I'm yes. confused. Uh, uh, yeah, mm. It doesn't get any easier <laughs> and everyone is still confused to this day. So just roll with it. I'm rolling with it. <laughs> um, so speaking of the Irish, we give James a nickname after this battle because he runs away. So James is known as James the Shit um, <laughs> in Irish history thereafter. Uh, the, the joke is he flees to Dublin and he says to a woman he bumps into, my army has run away, and the woman says, well, it seems your majesty has won the race. (laughs) Uh, Which is a devastating put-down to the monarch, and kind of sums up attitudes to him at the time. He He wasn't particularly He's pretty wank, isn't he? He's such a wank. Like, he's just the most depressingly wet king. There's that moment in history where he he almost got his head taken off by a cannonball, isn't there? And the Uh, world potentially might have been a better place. That was William. Oh, was that it? Was on the, yeah, that was on the other side of the Boyne. So William oh, at the start. Oh, no, I thought this was on a boat. Oh. This is a naval thing with James II. Uh, it may be fiction. It may be something I've read in J.D. Davis's stuff. But, uh, yeah, he he tells a similar tale. Oh, God, it would have been so much better if he died. He's <laughs> like a wet lettuce, really. Yeah. He's also the reason that there's the act of succession and all that nonsense about Catholics, isn't there? Mm-hmm. He just, there's, for someone who was so small and insignificant, there's like a massive hangover from his being around. Yeah, and he completely screwed Ireland for at least 150 years afterwards. So thanks, James. We fucking love you. <laughs> so why, why does the British Army go into Ireland at the time? Okay, so when, at the end of this war, um, they signed something called the Treaty of Limerick, and the Jacobites who supported James are basically told you can either sack off to France, or you can live in Ireland, but we're going to basically imprison you, um, or put you under a lot of restrictions. So a lot of the Jacobites flee to France, where James has set up a proxy court in Saint-Germain, which proves to be the biggest thorn in the French king's side in his entire reign, because it's basically a hive of scum and villainy, and like bandits go raiding constantly, and like Irish people just become really annoying in France. <laughs> However... Alina's like, this sounds like fun! <laughs> <laughs> Why am I saying... So- okay, I'm saying this. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> so, back in Ireland, um, the Catholics who remained uh, are viewed as a threat. And there's a chance that they might rise up again, or there's a chance that the Catholics who fled to France will come back and invade. So, between the penal laws I mentioned earlier, which were designed to suppress the Catholic interest, and this potential invasion, they decide to put 12,000 men in Ireland. Now, when I say they, it's not just the British 
and the the British deciding we need to suppress Ireland. This is the Irish Parliament itself voting for and paying for this military deployment. So you have a situation where you have the Irish government paying for British soldiers to be in Ireland to keep the Irish Catholics in check. That's so it's not going to come back to bite them in the arse, is it? No. <laughs> at one stage, it peaks at I think sixteen hundred, and even if, even during the troubles, I think the troubles peaked at maybe fifteen thousand um, five hundred or something like that. So it does outrank the troubles in terms of military deployment, and no one's really heard of it. Um, now they weren't just sort of moved in and told deal with it; they were given one of the widest and most extensive and modern networks of barracks in Europe in which to live. This was the first time it had really been attempted on this scale. So they were both urban and rural. You've got them based in cities and then also like, as like, uh, I suppose small posts dotted around the countryside to keep, uh, Tories and, you know, all that kind of thing in check. Uh, so it's a massive drain on the Irish government's finances, but they think it's worth it given the climate at the 1690s and early 1700s. Cause I'm so confused. I'm really, this is, I'm, I don't know how you're kind of like unwinding all of this. And I thought I had a problem with my part of history. Um, so the Irish, don't they? The Irish think that there's a benefit to having the British there, but clearly the British aren't going to go unless there's a benefit for them as well. So are they, is it like mutually beneficial to have this massive presence in Ireland? Sort of, yeah. So for the Irish, for the Irish perspective, if you're a Catholic, you have no, you have no input into this anyway, so it doesn't matter what you think. For the Irish Protestants, they view it as a good thing because it's, you know, keeping the Catholics in check and they view it as, you know, British presence here and it's, it's worth it. For the British, it's a place to keep their army because particularly after these, um, the Nine Years' War and then subsequently the War of the Spanish Secession. You've got the sort of birth of modern armies as we know them today with, you know, actual regiments and large numbers of soldiers being maintained in the military. And in Britain, there was serious adversity towards keeping men in towns. Uh, they didn't want them to have barracks or anything like that because they thought it would lead to uh, public unrest. So Ireland is a really convenient place to keep them. They're just over the Irish Sea. And in addition, the French and Spanish ha- in the past have had tendency to invade Ireland. So why not keep them there just in case they do end up invading? Uh, so it's sort of a, it's a, it's a convenience more so for the British, but for the Irish it's seen as a little bit more important. So talk to us, what was life like for the army at the time? <laughs> when they're in Ireland, boring as shit. <laughs> well, well, that's the easy answer. <laughs> Is that, yeah. It's just like the posting no soldier wants. I wouldn't go that far. I think it's the posting that they might be relieved to get if they weren't the best soldiers in the world because you're not, you're guaranteed to not get a disease or have to be killed by a, you know, and scalped in North America or, you know, you're not being sent out to India or anything like that. It's a relatively peaceful assignment. The problem was outside of your training maybe and barracks life, there isn't very much to do and you're still in somewhere where there's a fairly hostile population. It's better for officers because they get to spend time with the local aristocracy and, you know, they, they, they're viewed as this like new hot commodity on like the marital market and this kind of thing. Whereas for the average soldier, it's fairly dull. And most of the accounts that I've come across come from officers and they are very, very disparaging about the Irish. Uh, drink obviously features. I, I'm, I'm really proud of my country that the heritage of being alcoholic stretches back to the 1700s, probably further. <laughs> <laughs> so that is basically what there is to do. Yeah, they've all got theories about why the Irish drink. 
Um, and this seems to be like a constant source of discussion. So one guy who's a, who's a bit of a knob called James Augustus Ockton, he believes that everyone has already heard everyone's stories before in Ireland. So the only way to make them tolerable is to be drunk. That's and a the, really lame reason. Oh, he's a complete knob. Like his, <laughs> his account of living in Ireland is just a rugby tour. Like he goes around ruining Irish culture. So he visits a castle with his best friend where there's supposed to be his ghost. His best friend then sleeps overnight in the castle to prove that there is no ghost, just to give a finger up to the local guy who said there was a ghost there. Um, like he goes out. Go on, sorry. No, that's sad. That's, that's just, what a prick. Yeah. It's just like Brits on tour, isn't it? Yeah. He gets a pet otter at one stage. Uh, What? His friends, like, requisition whaling boats from parliament so they can go whaling for the sake of it and like he describes ireland as exposed to bleak westerly winds it seems incapable of producing anything but rabbits rocks bogs and land was all that nature wished him to work on like it's he's a dick (laughs) (laughs) so what problems do they face then i'm guessing that the army face a problem with misbehavior because if you give soldiers nothing to do they get up to japes don't they oh yeah um again drinking big issue uh, <laughs> because the, um, the, the reason, like, the soldiers themselves, they had easy access to alcohol. Uh, whiskey in particular was really common. In fact, most of their assignments when they were in Ireland were tipping over whiskey stills. So there was always going to be access to it. And there's a doctor called, I think, John Bell, who does this account of why is it that all the regiments in Ireland have massive ulcers on, ulcers on their legs, and apparently it's due to the amount of whiskey they drank. So that was a serious problem. In addition, just as like a, a broader issue, the army itself isn't made up of Irishmen. It was actually illegal for both Protestants and Catholics to enlist for most of the century because Catholics, obviously, you don't want to teach them how to shoot straight. And mm-hmm. Protestants, you need them in Ireland to suppress the Irish because the the army was under a constant sort of rotation whereby regiments would be moved, be it to America, and then regiments would come in and replace them, or even they'd be moved around Ireland. So there's no real sense of like settledness. So it's impossible for the men to settle down and they're constantly at unrest. And even the locals are kind of on edge because new people will come in and maybe they don't have as good a relationship with this regiment as the previous regiment. So it's a really sort of unsettled environment in which to live. So you've got mutinies. Um, desertion is a massive issue, particularly at the beginning of the century. And the way desertion is reported typically comes in newspapers. Uh, in the 1730s, there's a, the Dublin Journal posts hundreds of desertion reports. And like some of them are absolutely beautiful because they really give a good sense of what the soldier might actually look like. Mm. So my personal favorite is John Steele, purely because it sounds like a porn star. Yeah. Um, from, <laughs> from okay, go on, tell us about him. <laughs> so he was five foot 10, uh, right. 25 years old, and he was a glazer which is an unusual profession at the best of times. Um, he had a ruddy complexion, black curly hair, but a stoop in his soldiers, but my, or his shoulders. But my favorite bit is they say he is pretended to a knowledge of painting and mathematics. Imagine being such a bullshitter that you get called out for it in a local newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Why was he bothering to, to bullshit? I, it's just part of his character. Okay. This, so it, they'll also have... um. If he was particularly, like if they had spoke with a lisp or a certain accent, they'd include that. It's anything that can make him identifiable. So clearly this guy was such a bullshitter that 
you can identify this guy if someone comes up to you and says, I know how to solve that mathematical equation. With a limp. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a limp. Let's throw the limp in there just for fun. Of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> and when they desert it, often they desert with a lady friend. Um, one example is uh, this desertion of Philip McCran from Sligo, and he deserted with Mary Welch, a barrack maid, a lusty, fresh, full-faced woman of a middle size, a little inclined to fat, wears a dark olive gown. <laughs> I was going to say, like they, they must have ravaged the local female population. Yeah, and I think some of the female population were very much on board with it. Uh, yeah. In Ulster in particular, they seem to have a that they liked a man in uniform, uh, but marriages were actively discouraged uh, because if you married and then you had to ship out, as the regiments often had to do in Ireland, particularly if they were based in somewhere like Cork that was a port, um, it, it added another layer of administrative difficulty. So what you often have is there's one case where a regiment is told that it's going to ship out and all the soldiers try and get married as quickly as possible with the people they've already married because they know that it, once they ship out, they're never going to see their loved one again. So mm. it's, it's kind of a sad like um, thing as well because it's uh, that unrequited love or forbidden love, not unrequited. Um, there's, um, there's got to be something positive that they experience though. It can't all be negative. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did I gain anything from this, from having been used basically as a massive holding camp for bored soldiers? Sort of. I mean... I mean, as I said, they did get to marry local ladies. Um, it's a fairly easy gig. Yes, you have to deal with riots, but, you know, you had a barracks and that kind of thing. For Ireland itself, it gave them an enemy in a way. I mean, particularly towards the end of the century, the army, army starts to become incredibly unpopular, particularly in Dublin. And you have a phenomenon developing where you have soldiers um, being targeted in a ritualistic sort of terror attack sort of format. Uh, it's known as hawking. Mm. So what would happen is the soldiers, particularly if they're isolated on their own throughout the city, they'd be attacked by butchers who would uh, hamstring them. And they would they did this to over 100 soldiers over the course of the 70, uh, 1770s, 1780s. So this like shows the dissatisfaction that the people had and the army were just, you know, that, that there was nothing they could really do about it because they couldn't go out and hunt, down, hunt them down. And if they tried to do that, typically they ended up shooting civilians anyway. So it would just make things worse because uh, they were really bad at dealing with riots and rioting as a whole. So, you know, the positive elements to it are difficult to unpack at the best of times. And that's kind of like the aim of what I'm trying to do with this whole thesis is see if there's any positive positivity is- to it. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is interesting to me. So this is your PhD thesis as well. So why research this period? Like you say, it's pretty much ignored um, and nobody talks about it. Why do we need to bring more attention to it? I think that um, it's criminally under-researched. Despite the British Army being a really popular period or thing to research, a subject of research. And I think that a lot of it rests in laziness because it is still the British Army. It's the Irish military establishment, but the soldiers themselves that make up the British Army. So if you're going to do a history of the British Army, you can usually consign it to maybe a small section or a footnote and leave it at that. Whereas for an Irish historian's perspective, it's not something they actually want to look at. Because it is the occupying army. <clears throat> and I'm not going to say that Irish historians are all nationalist, because we're not. But maybe that does feature into it. Maybe it is sort of like there's a nationalist bent to it that it's unpopular to study this subject. And there's one quote uh, from a historian called Thomas Bartlett, who <clears throat> basically describes the Irish army as a byword for inefficiency and ill-discipline. And that has dominated any kind of mention of them since. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think a better sort of reflection of it would be that Ireland provides a really nice, um, like a focused viewpoint or a case study of wider issues within the British Army. I think it accentuates the good and the bad far more than anywhere else. Because if you look at somewhere like Gibraltar, which has been looked at, or the Caribbean or North America, you've got a very different circumstance. Whereas with Ireland, you're still close to home, but it's still that garrison experience and that sense of being slightly outside the norm. So I think it just accentuates everything that little bit more. Is there a long-term legacy of this massive occupation of Ireland? Well, as a result of the soldiers' incompetence, I guess, or their inability to act properly the rebellions that take place in the late 1790s such as the 1798 rebellion directly lead to the act of union um and the act of union writes the irish parliament out of existence combines the two gets rid of the kingdom of ireland and the act of union obviously leads to uh well, it's still in, in effect today in a way in, the, in ulster where you have the the six counties um forming northern ireland so one could draw a line all the way across it'd be It'd be tenuous, but one could arguably make that call if you wanted to. But I think it, it's difficult to really plot the legacy because so little has been done specifically about them. Right, you've got to have more anecdotes about the army. Come on, you've got to tell us and make us laugh just a little bit more. Okay, that I can do. So everyone in the army at some stage seems to spend time in Dublin, and Dublin had the best barracks. It was it was the the premium barracks. It was the the Savoy of barracks. Uh, it's still there, actually. It's you can it's now a museum. But the pro- the reason why everyone spent time in Dublin was that's where all the gangs were because Dublin had its own gangs of New York scenario with the gangs of Dublin, um, much like it is today. The north side and the south side hated each other. Uh, so you had the butchers who formed the Ormond Boys, and you had the weavers who formed the Liberty Boys. So one was on one side of the river, one was on the other. And these groups used to have organized gang fights in the middle of Dublin city centre. So they just agree, we're going to meet up at this green space and we'll kill each other this Sunday. Brilliant. Oh, now a leader's interested. Now yeah. I see a film. Yeah, I'm, it's, on, it's, go I'm on, on the edge of my seat and I'm like, tell me more. 
So these guys, they would meet up armed with coshes, axes, all sorts. Uh, the weapons got progressively more violent as you progress through the century. And the soldiers were tasked with suppressing these. But the problem with Ireland was it didn't actually have its own riot act. So it couldn't. It, there was no legislation behind them dealing with these gangs. So what would typically happen is the soldiers ended up becoming the third gang. So the two gangs would meet up and fight, then the soldiers would turn up, and then the gangs would turn on the soldiers. And then you had the soldiers chasing the gangs through the streets and trying to like kidnap the, the leaders, or more likely just shooting at the leaders or the gang itself and just opening fire on them. And these, uh, this gang warfare like fluctuates throughout the century and never really goes away. And you have incidents where the police force is so utterly corrupt that, <laughs> oh yeah, like I'm talking like 90% corruption. Like they cut, at one stage they, they do call the police, but they, from 2000, they only keep 200 of them. That's how bad it was. All the rest were involved in these gangs. So the police is incapable of doing anything. And it's the burden falls entirely on the military who have no capacity to deal with anything like this at all. So when you've got a gang of soldiers who are pretending to have a knowledge of painting and mathematics versus... <laughs> I just love that you chuck the authorities in and it just becomes... I'm seeing the Battle of the News crews in Anchorman. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> Just more people keep showing up. Yeah, and it, except the people who show up now have guns. And they they try and um, they try not to shoot at them, but oftentimes what will happen is that the process seems to be point your bayonet at them, and if they keep rioting, shoot no ball, just fire your musket with some powder, and that'll scare them. And if they keep rioting, shoot above their heads, and then if they keep rioting, shoot at them. And what's interesting, there's one case where it occurs in Dublin where a woman is the one who keeps egging them on, keeps egging on. The, the soldiers by throwing stones at them and encouraging everyone else to throw stones at them saying, don't worry, they don't have any ammunition. They're not going to shoot us. How dare they shoot us? And she gets shot four times. Um, you know, good effort, but you maybe do a little bit more research before you commit to that. <laughs> Did she die? Oh yeah. I mean, I know it's a stupid question. I mean, some people can survive being shot four times, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm curious to know she, oh my God, sorry. I just, there I can't. There must have been a moment when like the third and fourth bullets went in when she just thought, ah, oh, shit. I've made a terrible judgment <laughs> <for the> character. <laughs> yeah. Surprisingly, she isn't, or the army aren't charged for her murder. The rioters are. Because they think the rioters were to blame for the army needing to shoot at them. So that's sort of, the, you can see why people started to get more pissed off with the army as the century wore on. Just a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just say, how do the Irish public react? So obviously we, we've got some girls that like it. Um, mm -hmm. but how does Ireland, how do Irish, normal Irish people feel about this sudden arrival and mass intrusion? I think for a lot of them, it's, at, at first it might be a sense of relief. It's, um, you're just coming out of a fairly long period of conflict and only 40 years beforehand, the country had been completely torn apart uh, by all kinds of warfare and, the, and Cromwell and all of that. So it offered, at first anyway, stability, 
And it gave uh, retailers really enjoyed it because they gave them a new market. So you had flourishing of, you know, um, particular alcohol businesses to a degree, but also mm. others like uh, trading uh, cloth and that sort of thing. Say, yeah, if you owned an off license, you thought it was great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's instances where sergeants in the army would set up off licenses next to the barracks, which I think is like kind of a cruel thing to do to get your soldiers drunk and then on the parade ground next morning, beat them for it. But, you know, anything for your kicks, right? Yeah, anything for a bit of extra money. Yeah. Well, I, I think on, on the whole, though, that's that's sort of the one of the more surprising things from the research I've done. The Irish population didn't seem to mind at first. Mm. But as the century wore on, they realized that the army wasn't actually doing what it was supposed to be doing. So Ireland is invaded very, very briefly in 1760 by about 200 Frenchmen under the command of a man called Thoreau. So they Thoreau, just get lost. That sounds very out of character for the French to <laughs> put in that much effort. Yeah, well, he's, he's sent off with a fleet of five ships and he sails into the Irish Sea and he's given a choice, attack either Scotland or Ireland. His so he attacked like, the first one. Yeah, his <laughs> <laughs> it's like make a decision Thoreau come on uh, his men almost mutiny so he has to attack Ireland because it's easier um, he attack he lands near a place called Carrick Fergus in Belfast the local garrison abandon the townsfolk and hold up in a castle <laughs> uh, the townsfolk flee to Belfast and um, there's a very brief siege where the garrison eventually falls and it's sort of the only time that um, the Irish are ever properly invaded, I suppose, uh, by the French. Uh, eventually, he he sends like envoys to Belfast, and Belfast just pay him off. They say, you know, we'll give you whatever you want, just leave. And he does, and then he's sunk off the Isle of Wight and killed there. Uh, I actually have what he was paid with. So this is what it takes to get a fr- the French invasion out of Ireland. Okay. You need 40 hogheads of wine. 20 hogheads of brandy, 30 barrels of peas, 3 bags of onions and garlic, 60 cows, 60 barrels of butter, 4 barrels of vinegar, 4,000 weight of biscuits, 1,000 weight of tobacco, 600 weight of candles, 400 weight of rice, and 100 weight of sugar. That's all it takes. I love that there's the token amount of onion and garlic in there. Quick, they're French. Throw that at them. That'll make them go away. <laughs> Throw garlic at them like they're vampires. Just, wee wee, yes, get out of here. Come on, take your car and go. <laughs> oh, God. He does not sound like one of uh, France's great naval leaders, does he? So how does this come oh. to an end? How does, or, yeah, how, so Britain didn't obviously use this, this, this is a one-off, this massive presence of troops in Ireland. You said it's the biggest one ever. So how does it come to an end? Uh, it, eventually, with um, the French invasion and after that, the an organization's crops up called the Irish Volunteers, which is lots of Protestants and also Catholics who are trying to show loyalty to the English crown. And they think there's a, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's to do with the, them losing America and everything like that. And they want to show that they won't do the same thing. But these volunteer soldiers start doing a lot of the jobs the army was doing better. So the army becomes less and less popular. Um, then coming towards the end of the century after 1798, as I said earlier, you have the um, the Active Union. So the as part of the Active Union, the Irish Parliament no longer exists. They were the guys paying their wages, so they just become incorporated into the British Army. 
Okay. So that's sort of where my research sort of cuts off is that it's no longer its own separate thing. It's just part of the same garrison. So everything's just basically centralized. What's uh, brilliant now, is then that's basically where Zach's research starts with all the crime and punishment in the British army. Exactly. And I've gone back and forth with him about this. And that's why my century is better because without my century, his century wouldn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I did, you do. I know you have a WhatsApp nerd group, don't you? Literally where you guys are just like at it all the time with your army crime and punishment 18th century stuff uh, and oh, yeah. where the argument about who's his best wins oh yeah and obviously it's me because i've got um uh women who are tending to fat and wearing olive green dresses while he just has flogging like which is more entertaining yeah this is true sorry zach i'm gonna go with dorman <laughs> on this one and dorman's got a got a got a lovely accent reading last night that the director of that hideous film has come with a comeback hasn't he where he said and i believe the guy's irish where he has defended the emily blunt's accent and jamie dorman's accent mm. and said that Irish accents are so difficult to understand that they have to do the accent that way otherwise the world wouldn't understand them to which you said bollocks <laughs> does sound absolutely ridiculous apparently they intended to have irish accents that bad because they were making irish people more palatable for an international market mm. i think the other argument that there's an irish pub on every street corner in every town in the world you don't really need to make irish things palatable do you people like them already See, the problem is i don't know when that movie is set because it's they're talking about freezing eggs and all that kind of thing, but they dress and talk like it's the 1800s. So uh, <laughs> it's really, it, it, mm, it, there are issues. Issues are raised. <laughs> I'm Googling it now. When is, what's it called? Wild Mountain Time. Uh, it's upsetting that I know that. Did you know what's upsetting as well is that someone was saying that there is no wild mountain time is a Scottish thing. Irish thing. <laughs> someone was saying that it's actually a Scottish thing. Oh, I'm so upset. <laughs> oh, no. There are some good films that do good Irish accents. This just isn't one of them. This is not one of them. I think the worst offenders are probably found in that film, Michael Collins. That's particularly terrible. Liam Neeson's obviously fine, but some of the others in that film are just god awful yeah uh dorman is available um for accent coaching and he's <laughs> gonna start with clive after last night down the pub uh a clownish fiddle soundtrack gives way to Blunt's ethereal rendering of Wild Mountain Time, the implied historical period based on the famine era fashion and archaic dialogue is around the 19th century mm, this doesn't doesn't bode well. I can't wait to see it personally because I'm sure I can concoct a drinking game out of it or something like that. Yeah, we will have to have a session down the pub. Someone is actually trying to claim that it's a satire now. That's just the ultimate defence. I was joking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. The whole time I was japing. Dorman, thank you so much for joining us and um basically confusing the, the shit out, out of you. <laughs> yeah pretty much um with some very interesting stories about uh, slightly plumpy ladies um <laughs> no fat shaming here no oh. fat shaming here um <laughs> i'm sorry i can't I'll, I'll keep laughing 
Um, it is a very tumultuous, complicated history. Dorman's going to have to come back and and give you more on either side to put it into perspective. I think. Yes. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to it, and I'll happily talk about it again. Outstanding. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Join us a bit later on when we will continue our celebration of all things Irish. We will be having a special down the pub session where we look at Ireland's greatest moment um, and we let Dorman judge. But because we couldn't let him have all the fun, we made him judge with Marcus. So Princess and Dorman try to eke out of us the best moment in Irish history. Don't miss that. And then tomorrow we have a real treat for you. Dusty Nichol is with us. So all about his new book, which is Miss Spain in Exile. The big thing about this is that Miss Spain in Exile... 1938 was his mum he has taken a memoir that she started about fleeing the spanish civil war uh, seeing europe on the eve of world war ii and then moving to america and he's turned it into a book about her life and it is a fascinating story you can find out also about how she was almost a bond girl so don't miss that one when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there, and we have our own channel, and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.